And uh, that's what we gather here together today to do, is to praise him. And so we're excited to be able to do just that. If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Thank you, Roy. If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. And today, um, we're going to be continuing a study that we've been at for, um, for a few months now. We've been working through this since uh, September, actually. So we're coming up on the end of um, our fourth month uh, in this study. Oh, fifth month in this study. I can do math. Um, and so we're excited to be able to be continuing through this. And what we're doing is we're going through the book of Matthew. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew is uh, what we would call a gospel. A gospel. That word gospel means good news, and it's speaking specifically of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so this gospel, being a literary genre, is actually um, what it would be is kind of a biography of Jesus. Now, there are four of them contained in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of them um, come at the story in the life of Jesus from a little bit different perspective. All of them agreeing and understanding on who Jesus is, but kind of portraying him in some different terms to different audiences specifically. And so as we open this text, we're looking at Matthew's record. And what we're seeing is uh, right now in the middle, of, about the middle of the book or a third of the way through the book, we're seeing three sets of three miracles uh, or three paragraphs containing miracles that Jesus has done. And so Matthew kind of records each set of these with different themes in mind. And so a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the authority of Jesus Christ as he came and as he spoke with this power and this authority and others beheld and they looked and they said, who is this man that he's able to do these things with this authority? And then a couple of weeks ago, we saw the ability that he had as he calmed the storm, as he cast out demons from uh, these men that were possessed. And we see the ability that he had, and we see how the people respond to this ability in amazement. What we're going to see today um, is similar but different as we continue through and really as we finish up this series of uh, miracles contained in the book of Matthew, the beginning of the book of Matthew. And today we're going to a little bit more of an insight into the heart of Jesus. And we're going to see at the same time, the introduction to some opposition. Um, have any of you in your life, it's going to be a hard question. All right. So think hard, reflect, meditate, pray. Have any of you ever faced any kind of opposition? Why are you laughing? Because we all do, Right. I mean, like we had some opposition coming here this morning, right? We, um, you know, those of us that have four-wheel drive cars, we're kind of shifting that on and trying to navigate the snow. And so what are we, we've all faced some kind of opposition and that's lighthearted, right? As long as we all make it here, okay. But genuinely, many of us have faced very difficult days. I know some in this room are walking through them right now. And so we've been in those places where we've seen opposition. We've seen the discouragement that comes. We've seen uh, maybe you've been a part of a project. Or you've had a goal that you wanted to accomplish. And then everything just seems to go wrong. Everything just seems to be going against you. And you feel like you're fighting an uphill battle. And why is it so difficult? Well, to this point, most of what Jesus had been doing, people were flocking to Jesus. People were coming to him and they were saying, oh, wow, look at him. He's, he's healing He's casting out demons. What good things these are. Who can be mad about that? And now, even as we come to the end of this uh, set of miracles that Jesus has performed over chapters uh, 8 and 9, 
Now is the time that people decide to begin opposing, outwardly opposing the work that Jesus is doing. And so I want to look at these three miracles. I want to look at the individuals that are being affected. I'm sorry, there are actually four miracles um, through three selections um, that Matthew made. And so I want to take a look at what's going on, what's happening on the surface, what's happening beneath the surface. As today we get introduced to someone who is dead, someone who's bleeding, someone who's blind, and someone who is mute. And then we're going to find out how that applies and how that directly relates to us today. But for now, let's go to the scripture. Let's start at verse number uh, 18 of chapter number 9. So Matthew 9, verse number 18. While he was saying these things, and so what things are Jesus saying? In fact, we actually got a little bit of a a hint at the opposition last week. Um, And then really today we're going to see how that escalates. Um, But while he was saying these things, he's speaking uh, some unpopular sayings at the beginning of this passage. Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So this is, um, can we all agree? This is a big ask of this man. Um, this, this account's actually recorded in a couple of the other gospels. This man's name is Jairus. He was a ruler of the synagogue. He was a Jewish man with some influence and some uh, ability. And so now he's at this point where his daughter had been sick. And if you're anything like me, uh, what, would, what would keep you from taking care of your kids? I mean, nothing, right? There's no expense that doctors could have asked. There's no uh, cure that could have been denied uh, by Jairus. Anything that he has in his ability to do to bring his daughter healing, he's doing, right? And so we don't know how long she had suffered through this. We don't know exactly what had taken place or what disease had afflicted her. But what we do find is that Jairus comes into the room as Jesus is speaking these things. And this man of influence, this man of a good reputation, gets down on his knees and says, Lord, my daughter is dead. I know that you can make her whole again. What kind of faith is that? Uh, This man, he's at the end of his rope, right? You don't see people of influence. uh, You don't see people with means. You don't see people without means uh, groveling, do we? Uh, You don't walk to the store and see someone begging the cashier for a discount. Um, You don't walk into, that's not how life works. But this man was so desperate for the work that only Jesus could do. That he comes in, gets on his knees and says, Lord, if you want to heal her, you can. Now, to this point, to this point, Jesus hasn't raised anyone from the dead. You and I might remember and reflect on other stories such as Lazarus in John chapter number 11. And we look at Lazarus and we say that's the the more known raising of a dead person. But that's not happened yet. That was towards the very end of Jesus' ministry. That's a couple years away from where we're at here in the book of Matthew. We think of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how he uh, rose from the dead after his crucifixion. And we look at that and say, well, there is an example of, but so far, that's not happened in the Gospels. So this man who is coming to Jesus for his dead daughter is having faith that Jesus can do something that no one has ever seen before. No one has ever witnessed this miracle that he is asking Jesus for. And then what does he, but what does he do next? So he says, come and lay your hand on her. She will live. 
Verse number 19, Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And so while Jesus is going to perform a miracle, um, a miracle is performed by him uh, en route to this other one. And we don't know how often things like this happened with Jesus, right? This is almost like a, a footnote here with the rest of the story. It's encapsulated by the story of Jairus and his daughter. But this woman who had suffered for 12 years, one of the other uh, gospels tells us that even she had gone to the doctors, she had gone to all of the uh, healers that she was able to go to, and none of them were able to heal her of this issue. She had spent everything that she had. All of her resources were gone because she had been trying and trying and trying to be healed. She had depleted everything still without any hope of relief. And so for 12 years, she had suffered with this uh, ailment. Now, understand that what she is dealing with is not only a physical affliction, although it is that. Although there is probably, there's likely this uh, type of bleeding would have resulted in anemia, weakness, inability to really have a lot of energy, to work, to function normally. But not just that, also this woman being Jewish, this would have prevented her from being able to participate in any type of religious ceremony or worship. She's an outsider. Uh, she has no ability to come into the temple and worship like others. Uh, she's outcast for many of her friends because just being with her and touching her would make them unclean as well. And so this woman has not only suffered physically, but spiritually, emotionally. Uh, all of these things have suffered as a result of this ailment that she's battling. But then she hears Jesus is coming to town. And so what does she do? She's almost uh, afraid to come and to speak to him. Jairus comes in and he says, hey, Lord, please come here. She says, I don't need that kind of attention. But if I can just touch, if I can just touch his garment. And so what does she do? She makes her way through this crowd. And she doesn't even have to touch his shoulder or his arm. In fact, Jewish men uh, wore four tassels on the corners of their garments to remind them to teach and to proclaim and to follow after the law. And so many believe that the fringe of the garment was just one of those tassels hanging off of his cloak. And so she comes and she uh, imagine being touching that though. What is she doing? Is she standing upright? Hey, pat on the back. Thanks, Jesus. That's what I really needed. I mean, she's on her hands and knees. She's, she's down here. She is a humble position as she's pursuing after Christ. As we've looked at all of these stories of healing so far, over and over again, we've seen various accounts of faith. Uh, we've seen faith that was great faith. Maybe we think of the uh, centurion that we talked about a few weeks ago. This centurion was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. And he came to Jesus and said, hey, my servant is sick. You can heal him. And he says, I'll come. And he says, no, no, you don't have to come. Just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus commends the faith of this man and heals. And then we have the disciples who are in this storm. 
and it begins to rock the boat. And Jesus is sleeping right there with them. And the waves are crashing around them. And uh, they cry out to Jesus. They shake him awake. And they say, help us or we die. And what does Jesus look at him and says, where's your faith, right? What's wrong with you? What's going on? Okay. He rebukes the the wind and the waves after correcting the, the disciples and saying, guys, come on. What is wrong with your faith? But here's some good news that I see as we look at both of these accounts of faith here in Matthew chapter number nine. I want us to understand this. There's really a question that's posed. This woman comes, this is the first time we see anything like that. We don't see uh, Jesus reaching out his hand to touch. We see now this person has come and has touched Jesus. And yet this faith heals her, makes her whole again. A question that I think we ought to consider as we read through this passage is how much faith is saving faith? How much faith is saving faith? We look at men and women and we say, these men and women have great faith. Look at what they were able to accomplish. And we pat on the back and commend great faith. But how much faith is saving faith? As we consider this this morning, I want you to think about this. And I want us to understand it this way. The object of faith is more important than the size of faith. The object of our faith is more important than the size of our faith. No, am I telling you to have little faith? That's not what I'm telling you. But I would rather you have a little faith in Jesus than a lot of faith in the wrong thing. I'd rather you believe, even though it's difficult to believe, even though you're hoping not to be disappointed, uh, that belief that has some ambivalence still, but that faith to come in and say, that's where I'm going with, than to have all the faith in the world in anything else. Because the fact is that we can have a lot of faith in the wrong object. Maybe you've uh, been in a relationship, maybe a business relationship with someone, and you had a lot of faith in that person, and then they let you down. It's a lot of faith in the wrong object. Maybe you had a faith in a, in a personal relationship, or maybe in a job, a career, uh, goals and dreams that you had. These were, your faith was put in these things, and then they never came to pass. Or the job that you accepted, and you thought, this is my dream job. It fell out of favor very quickly. It wasn't what it was all cracked up to be, right? We can have faith in a lot of different things. We can have faith even in ourselves. And uh, if we're really being honest this morning, faith in ourselves uh, may not be the place that we want to put it. Because if you're anything like me, you're going to let yourself down a lot. Right? So we're not here talking about, we're not looking at Jairus and this woman who is sick and saying, how great is their faith? Did they have faith? Absolutely they had faith. But the fact is, is it was what the object of the faith was, and the object of the faith was Jesus Christ. Both of these came to the right place with that faith. We know they both had faith because they both acted on it. And faith always produces some kind of action. You can't sit on your own and say, I have faith, but not do anything about it. If I said, hey, come over here and have a seat in this chair. And you looked at that chair and you said, you know what? I have faith that that chair can hold me. I would say, okay, well then sit in it. And if you said, yeah, you know what? I'm not going to sit in it, but I know it'll hold me. I'm going to say, what's wrong? Why won't you? If you're standing in here, and all of us are sitting down, except me, I guess. Uh, but you had faith in that chair, right? 
You demonstrated that faith by taking a seat. These people demonstrated their faith by going to Jesus, by being willing to uh, go to and look for this healing, whether it be for themselves or for others. And so the faith existed. We're not talking about is the faith real or not, but we are talking about the one that the faith is placed in. And then you understand, I want you to understand how great faith ever comes about. Great faith starts as little faith. Because as these two came to Jesus, we don't know exactly about the quantity of their faith, uh, but what was their faith like when they walked away from Jesus? What was the faith of this woman like, the one who had uh, crawled to Jesus and touched the hem of his garment and was healed? What is her faith like as she walks away? Greater or smaller? It's greater, right? Because wait a second, I had a little faith, and now he did this. My faith was in the right thing. This validation of the faith that was inside of her already. And so we watch as this faith increases. And watch Jairus. If I had been Jairus at this time, I would have to think that my heart would be very encouraged watching this. Because not only is that woman's faith increased, but my faith would be increased. As Jesus is saying, he's going to come, he's going to heal my daughter. Now I watch him do this thing that no one else could do. And he he did it almost by accident, right? And so what do we see? Uh, We see he continues to, and then watch what takes place when they get to this home. First, Jesus turns, sees this woman, verse 22, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Instantly, the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the ruler's house, saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but sleeping. Um, And the next thing you see is that they laughed at him, which is a funny thing because here's what's happening. In Jewish tradition, especially uh, this century, they would hire mourners to come out and to uh, wail and bemoan. Today, funeral services are generally very reserved in our culture, right? If you attend a funeral, very laid back, not laid back is the right word, but quieter, right? A little more somber. This was dramatic. If you went to a first century Jewish funeral as a 21st century American, um, we would all probably be a little bit um, taken aback by what's going on. Because people are crying out, wailing. They're playing uh, the funeral music we see here. And there are those that are paid to come and really provide a backdrop for this moment for the rest of your life, right? I mean, it's kind of a, for us, maybe a little bit of a different tradition. And so as Jesus shows up, he sees these mourners and he says, hey, get out of here, shoo. She's not dead. She's asleep. What are you thinking, right? And if you know what's going on here, um, She's dead. She's dead. So they're like, Jesus, what's, what, what are you talking about? Like, uh, we checked her pulse. She's not breathing. Um, like, no expert here, but uh, dead. And Jesus drives them out. Says, hey, get, get out of here. Get out of here. Um, and what a wonderful thing. I was, um, unfortunately, uh, part of my uh, role involves having to uh, bury people that I care about. And be involved in those things. I'm privileged to be able to, but it's always sad when it takes place. Um, one of the things, the first couple of funerals that I did in my lifetime, uh, I wanted to look and see what Jesus had to say about death and dying. And I noticed that every time he showed up at a funeral, the funeral was canceled. And so I was like, oh, I can't, can't even borrow anything, Jesus. Because I, I can't do that. 
But that's what happens here. They're like, oh, we got this funeral plan and the arrangements. And I can just imagine the caterers are on their way. And, and Jesus is like, all right, guys, get out of here. Get out of here. They're probably wondering if they're going to get their paycheck, you know. Uh, but what does he do? He shoes them away. And then he says this. After they laugh at him, verse 25, when the crowd had been put outside, he went in. He took her by the hand and the girl arose. That's all he did. Just like going into your child's room and waking them up from a nap. He goes in, takes her by the hand, and what does she do? She gets up. She's healed. It's not a big pomp and circumstance surrounding it. It's just the touch of his hand. And you see, here as Jesus comes in and he uh, brings this girl back to life, what happens as a result? Verse 26, the report of this went through all that district. And this is an important uh, verse here. Don't throw this away. It's short. It's succinct. It seems like there's not a whole lot going on. But reports of this went throughout all the district. Imagine um, if we were, if you had attended a funeral and uh, someone came in and touched the uh, body of the deceased and they sat up in their casket. You're telling people, right? You guys are not going to believe what happened to me today. And so what happens is people see this little girl, they're like, wait a second, we were just in there five minutes ago, and she was dead. She wasn't getting up, she wasn't moving, she wasn't, nothing was happening. And now she's walking around, now she's playing, now she's laughing with her family. Now, I mean, those tears of mourning are turning into tears of joy. As Jairus, I'm sure he's cried a lot these last few days, and he's crying once again because he's holding his daughter, who was once again alive. And so all of this is taking place, so people are going everywhere. And they're telling everyone the things that are happening. Um, store that in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to it in a moment. And so we see this girl who was dead, this woman who was bleeding and unclean. And then we continue in the story as Jesus passes by from there. Verse number 27. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And so these men here are calling out to Jesus. The son of David. This is a messianic reference. This is talking about Jesus as the, the Savior, the Messiah, the one that the Jewish people have been waiting for. And so and they're crying out to Jesus, saying, Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, and we don't know exactly whose house this is. Some believe it to be Matthew's house once again. Uh, but when he entered the house, whichever home he is at now, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And so he asks this question of the blind men. They say to him, what? Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And so these men now, blind men, have no ability to physically see. Um, Matthew appreciates irony. If you haven't caught that yet, um, go back and read through again. Matthew appreciates irony. Because the irony here that he's about to introduce is that these blind men see better than many of the other Jews. So these men who have no ability to actually see with their eyes have better insight and understanding than many of their countrymen. And so once again, we find men that it's difficult for them. It's not a private thing for them to come to Jesus. It wasn't a private thing to Jairus. It wasn't a private thing to this woman that was bleeding. It wasn't a private thing to these blind men. They came to Jesus, and what are they doing with their faith in Jesus? They're saying, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on us. And here's the thing. Um, they're following after Jesus as blind men. 
Think about how difficult that would be. Without their sight, they, they're not just watching him. They're not even deaf. They're, they can see him go. They're maybe relying on the crowds. Maybe they attached to someone else who was following after you. We don't know. But they're going and they're calling out to Jesus and they're calling out to Jesus all the way back to the home that he was staying at. And when they get to this home, he addresses them. And he says, do you believe that I can do this thing for you? And what, is, what does he say? He says, yeah, I, yeah, I believe that. And what does he do? He touches them and he heals them. Verse 29, and he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. It's a little bit different thing to end this, but before we even continue in here, I want us to have another insight into faith. Faith requires seeing what can't be seen. Faith requires seeing what can't be seen. If you can see it, it's not faith. That's the extent of it. It requires seeing what can't be seen. Hebrews chapter number 11, verse number one tells us, he says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, uh, which is a lofty way of saying, hey, faith is our understanding and our belief that something is real, even if we can't put all of the pieces together. Now, we like to be able to see all the details, right? Do we have any planners in the room? Any planners in the room? You want to know everything that's going on. You want to know every step. You want to know how everything is going to be accomplished. Um, I hate to spoil this for you. God doesn't work that way. He doesn't demonstrate himself in our lives saying, hey, here's my 10-year plan, my five-year plan for you, and here's how it's all going to lay out. But faith requires seeing the things that can't be seen. And even though we can't see Jesus with our eyes, we say, hey, I'm going to follow after you. I see the evidences of, and I'm going to pursue. And we see these blind men giving such a great example of faith. A man that they had only heard about. They had never seen. They'd never witnessed one of these miracles. Hey, what do they do? They pursue after him. And what does he do? He changes their lives. He gives them their sight back. He heals them. He makes them whole. And then after all of this, Jesus speaks and he says to them, see that no one knows about it. So this miracle, he doesn't do, and again, actually, both of these miracles that he uh, was on his way to do, he doesn't do publicly. Jairus' daughter, where does he heal Jairus' daughter? Inside the home. Who's present inside the home? No one that we know of. Maybe parents, we, we don't have that recorded here in Matthew. But the mourners, he kicks them out. He doesn't do it in front of everybody, which is an interesting transition that we see here in the book of Matthew. And then now he comes and he... Uh, the one woman obviously caught him in the way, and he heals her. He didn't deny her. And then these blind men that are crying after him, and what does he continue? He goes to his path till he gets to the home, um, and then they come here, and in the privacy of this space, he touches them and he heals them. And then he says, don't tell anyone about what has just happened. And many believe that this is taking place. There's a, this is a specific theme throughout the Gospels. If you want to know more about it, it's called the Messianic secret. The Messianic secret is the term that's used by theologians to describe this. And he's saying, don't, don't share with anyone else the things that are taking place. Now for you and I, this is counterintuitive, right? As Christians living in the 21st century, what is our mission? Matthew chapter 28. 
go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, right? Uh, Like, don't shut up about it. And here Jesus is saying, hey, don't tell anyone. Uh, As we are about to see, the opposition against Jesus was growing and growing and growing. It was becoming stronger and stronger and stronger. There There were those who did not want Jesus fame and his name, the works that he was doing to increase. And we're going to have a glimpse into that here in the third of these stories this week. And so now we have to understand that Jesus, as he's saying these things, he has insight into what's about to take place. He knows what's coming. He knows that there are those who would seek his life or seek to endanger him. But his time has not come for that. One of the things that's often difficult about following Jesus is the patience that it requires. Anyone, anyone in here just gifted with patience? You're just so patient. I was waiting for a hand to go up because I thought maybe, you know, you weren't in a hurry and just, that's none of us, right? None of us. I didn't see any hands. If you are like, you feel free to raise your hand and I'm going to call you to watch my paint dry or something. Uh, Like, no, we all hate being patient. Um, we like microwaves. <laughs> we like things that work fast. Uh, some of us probably got frustrated that it took, you know, 10 minutes instead of five to get to church this morning. Like, we want to get things done. Patience is not our virtue. But oftentimes, when we follow Jesus, it works in his time, not in ours. You see, my timeline, my timeline would be done, 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 check the list, go, right? What are you waiting for? But Jesus' timeline, he doesn't seem to be a concern for him. It doesn't seem to be the thing that he's all he's concerned about. In fact, he knows that the time is still to come. And so, hey, God's going to accomplish his work. Let's give him time to do it. Because we understand that this is Matthew chapter number nine. The book of Matthew has 28 chapters. We're not at the end of the story yet. We're just coming to the middle. And so here Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Now, um, how many of you have ever told your kids, don't tell anyone? Uh, this worked about the same way, uh, because we see that uh, what takes place. They went away and they spread his fame through all that district. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> Give you one job. And you know, I'm conflicted, you know, like, is this, is this wrong for them? Because they're going and they're telling about Jesus, but they're disobeying Jesus to tell them, about, you know, like they're trying, they're spreading the good news of the Messiah. They were told not to do it. I mean, if everyone was told not to teach about Jesus and tell it this way, I would probably get up here on Sundays and tell you not to tell it about Jesus, right? Because they just go out and they do. Throughout all the districts. And so we see back to back that these men and are going, these crowds are going, and they're telling everyone what Jesus just did and what took place. Which brings us to the final story that we're going to look at today. As they were going away on their mission to spread his fame throughout all the district after he said not to, a demon possessed, a demon oppressed man, excuse me, who was mute, was brought to him. And so there's this man that um, Matthew credits their inability, his inability to speak to demon oppression. And so they bring this man, someone brought this man to Jesus. In verse 33, when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Once again, what do we see? We see who's, who's present for this miracle? It's crowds, right? 
All of a sudden, there's this group, right? And so this attention is being brought to Jesus and brought to Jesus and brought to Jesus, even as he heals uh, this girl in a, in, a, in a house, in a home, uh, in private, even as he heals these men in private. Everyone is finding out about these things that are taking place in private. And so now he heals this mute man, and the crowd's just gushing over all of this that's taking place. They're just fawning over Jesus saying, well, look at all the things that he's doing. And to this point, he's known as the healer, the one that gives miracles and does these things. Some are beginning to understand his teachings, but they're still a long way off from fully being able to reconcile them. But what we see here in this passage is we see the enemy at work. Because we see this man that is possessed by a demon and we see this spiritual oppression that is taking place. You see, the work of God, as we spoke with at the beginning today, it's often oppressed. In fact, maybe always oppressed. But it's never overcome. And so we see, uh, again, Jesus facing off against um, demonic spiritual activity. And what it's, who comes out on top? Well, Jesus does. Um, they're not equal opposites. It's not Satan and Jesus and they're, no, they're, they're, it's Night and day, it's totally different. They're not uh, apples to oranges. Different comparison, different plane, different. Jesus is creator. Uh, Satan, the devil, is created, okay? And so uh, here Jesus comes and he, he casts off the enemy, just like that. But the enemy's work is not done. The explicit enemy's work might be, but the enemy's work isn't done because watch what happens next. The crowd are saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel, but the Pharisees. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And so even while the enemy was at work in this public way through this mute man and he was cast off, where are the Pharisees getting this idea from? Where are the Pharisees getting this lie from? They said, hey, you know what? I bet Jesus is in league with the demons. There's a theory. I bet he's one of them and he has the authority. And so he's sending them out because uh, he's in league with them. And they're, they're helping him to demonstrate this so-called power. There's no way he's from God. This must be the explanation. And so we see uh, not only opposition coming explicitly, but we see this opposition kind of sneakily coming in through the Pharisees. We see the enemy had power over the Pharisees. But here's one of the things that I think is a little bit frightening looking at this passage. You see, the the mute man, everyone knew that the enemy had power over him, right? Everyone knew the enemy had power over him. There was something wrong. There was something not functioning correctly. It was publicly credited to demon oppression. The Pharisees had no idea the enemy had power over them. The Pharisees had no idea. They thought they were serving God. They thought doing, they were doing the godly things. They were doing the, the traditions and the rituals. And hey, we're good because we're spiritual and we're going through the routine and the motions. And yet what's happening here? They're totally deceived. They're totally missing it. And they're not even looking for help. At least the mute man and those surrounding him had the sense to look for help. The Pharisees are right there and they don't care at all. They're lost and they don't realize it. They think they're found. And can I say that's, a, that's more dangerous than being lost and knowing you're lost. 
Because these, this, these group of men now, they're coming and they're saying, oh, he's casting out demons by the prince of demons. By, well, he's doing it through demon, demonic power. He's, he, no, listen. These men are revealing much more about themselves than they are about Christ. And you see here, the Pharisees, they were just as influenced by the demons as the mute man, but they had no idea. How sad. How sad. You see, Sometimes when we look at opposition, we see opposition taking place. We see the, uh, the mute man, if you will. We see areas that we say, wow, the enemy must be at work in this situation. Oh, the devil's really fighting in this way. Uh, but oftentimes, when things are going ways that we want, or when we have, uh, want to behave in a certain way, we say, we don't credit those to him. <laughs> None of us like to admit that we've been deceived, do we? We don't like to admit that we've been lied to. Or that we've believed it especially. These Pharisees, they're so unwilling to change their minds. They're so unwilling to take this evidence of faith and look at it and say, hey, this man's doing things that no one else has done before. Maybe we should actually give him an opportunity. And instead, what do they do? They say, no, 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 there's no way. He couldn't be the Christ. He couldn't be the Messiah. And they reject him out of turn. In fact, they accuse Jesus of actually working with the demons. Throughout all of this, we find these four men, men and women. We see the dead, the bleeding, the blind, and the mute. Here, Jesus is going about and he's changing their lives. And as he changes their lives... He faces criticism and opposition. We look and we say, that's bizarre, right? But I want to take a second and bring this into our world. Because if I can uh, be so bold, we are dead, bleeding, blind, and mute. Like, well, I've never described myself that way. But we were all born in sin. In fact, the Bible teaches us that we were born spiritually dead disconnected, uh, not alive. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ came for us. So how am I bleeding? Understand the uncleanliness that's associated with this. You and I, we're unclean. We can't scrub ourselves enough. Not physically, but spiritually. That sin that resides in us, that makes us impure, separates us from God. We're blind because we don't understand our lostness until someone helps us until the Holy spirit of God reveals to us our lostness. We can be lost our whole lives. And then we hear the gospel of Jesus. And then it dawns on us. Wait a second. That's me. We're mute. The devil's got a hold of us. Our enemy has a hold of us. He wants to take us into captivity, whether we know it like the mute man or not like the Pharisees. And in fact, he might prefer it if we don't realize it. These are all about us. These are us in the story. We're not Jesus. We're not the disciples. We're the dead girl. We're the bleeding woman. We're the blind man. And we're the mute. Maybe the Pharisees. But here's what we see happen over and over and over again throughout this passage. What does Jesus do? He goes to the dead girl. He doesn't say, yep, she's dead. See you later. He brings her to life. He goes to this woman who was unclean, and what does he do? Makes her clean. 
these blind men that came to him, the ones who couldn't see, he says, hey, I can give you your sight. And he does it. And this man had been oppressed by this demon. He was mute. He was unable to function normally in society. Jesus cast the demon out. You see, in each of our lives, Jesus wants to come in. And he wants to bring you life. He wants to make you clean. He wants you to be able to see. And he wants to overcome the enemy. He has overcome the enemy for you. As we look at this passage, as we see all of this coming together, understand this. Through Jesus, we can be living, clean, seeing, and free. Through Jesus, we can be living, clean, seeing, and free. But you can't do it any other way. Just like all of these individuals were incapable of bringing themselves healing. That's what we really see in this chapter is that these are men and women that have tried, right? These are men and women that have looked for ways, in the first two especially. Uh, they tried it on their own, but you can't. You can't. You see, your sin has separated you so far from God, and it's a sin that you were born with. You inherited that. We all did. And we can't get rid of it on our own. We can't heal ourselves any more than uh, our, our dead loved ones can say, hey, I'm going to be alive, and they can sit back up. It doesn't work that way. But Jesus can. Jesus can. Jesus comes in and he sees our sin and he says, hey, I can, I can clean that up. In fact, I already took care of it. He died on the cross, taking your sin and my sin on himself. So what can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's nothing else that can. You see, we come to God with spiritually dead, unclean, blind. We can't even see our way out. But Jesus stepped in. He intervened on our behalf. And without the gospel of Jesus Christ, where does that leave us? Dead, bleeding, blind, and mute. That's who we are without him. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know spiritually what's going on in your heart and your mind and your life. But I want to encourage you. If you are sitting in here today and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, can I say this? You put your faith in the right place. And he's going to continue to grow that faith. You keep following after him. He's going to continue to grow that faith. It's like going to the gym. It might start small, but you continue it and you continue it. And day after day after day, you begin to see those results. And he'll increase your faith. He'll grow your faith. And there might be those in here today that you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You've never, what we would maybe say, been saved or been born again. That's not your story or your testimony. But even now, you begin to sense these things. You understand these things. You see the evidences of sin around us and in your own life. And I just say, you can't undo that on your own. You can't just clean up that mess. It's like trying to scrub a floor with a dirty mop. You're just going to make it worse. There's nothing you can do except come to Jesus. Because he says, hey, y'all come. Come. I've paid the price for you. I can heal. I can do these things. No one else can. Why would you look to another source when there's one sitting right in front of you? Because through Jesus, you don't have to be dead, bleeding, and blind, and mute. You can be living, you can be clean, you can be seeing, and you can be free.
That's why God sent Jesus. To die a death that you and I deserve to die. You and I, we deserve to be condemned for our sin. We deserve a place that the Bible calls hell, the grave. It's not what we desire, but it's what we deserve. But Jesus stepped in. And Jesus, he, understand this, never sinned. Never suffered with those things that you and I do. He was tempted in every way like we are, but never gave in to this temptation. And yet, died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. Why? For us. So that he could heal us. So that he could make us alive in him. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I want to encourage you, today would be a great day to do that. Today would be a great day to make that decision. Next week, we're going to celebrate with a few people who have made that decision in their lives. We look forward to that day. We lift up the name of Jesus through baptism, but hey, today would be a great day for you to make a decision to become a follower of Jesus. To say, my faith is only going to be put in him because I know that my faith can't be put in me or anything else. So if that's you, in just a moment, we're going to have a time that we call an invitation. And what that means is we're inviting you to respond to the word of God. We'll sing a song. If you would like to join in, you're welcome to. You can pray at your seat, or if you have questions, if I can be a help to you, I'll be right down front here. I would love to open up the Word of God with you or connect you to someone who can and show you how you can put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from sin, take you from dead, 